All right, we ready to get started? Okay, so we're going to wrap up our little three-week series on the brief Reformation in Italy. As I said uh, in, in the beginning of this, that we, when we think of the Reformation, we typically think of Luther's Germany, Cramner's England, Calvin's Geneva. Uh, these are places where the Reformation had a lasting impact where the roots went down and they stayed for a long time. When we think of the Reformation, we typically don't think of Italy. And so we want to think about a little, a little bit of what happened in the brief Reformation that Italy did experience. Um, so I brought slides. We've, we've gone through uh, two weeks of that great book, uh, Il Beneficio di Cristo, The Benefit of Christ, uh, and we explored what that book is all about and how important it was. And I'm super excited that so many of you want to read it. And uh, as I said, there's some transliterations in English in the modern language that are available, but we're working on a good uh, modern translation from the original Italian. And God willing, that'll be out in the next year or so. Anyway, let's think a little bit more broadly about what happened. <clears throat> so modern Italy looks like this. If you've been to Italy before, you know there's or even if you haven't, you might know that there's 20 regions, right? So, it, but it's one country. Uh, since about 1861, it's been unified. Before 1861, Italy was never unified, not as a, as a full country. Um, you know, these are, this is the north up here. North, that's where usually the north is, up on top. Uh, Lombardy is where uh, Milan is. Um, Emilia Romana is where Bologna is, and uh, the Veneto is Venice down here, Tuscany, beautiful area. It's where uh, Florence and Siena is, Lucca. Umbria, beautiful place. Uh, you get down in here, it's just gorgeous. Up here, it's nice, it's its, its own beauty. Uh, Umbria is where Perugia is, Lazio is where Rome is, uh, Abruzzo is where my grandfather came from. Uh, not that that matters. Uh, this is where Puglia is where Vincenzo's from. This is where uh, Simonetta was born, but then she was raised over here. And then uh, Calabria, you get down here, it's, it's a lot different. The weather's different, the culture's different, very different from the north to the south. In fact, it was said that for hundreds of years, Milan, which is in the north, had more in common with England, which, or London, which is way up here, than it did with the south of Italy. In, uh, at the time of the Reformation, it looked like this. This is a map of Italy in four, 1494, so just on the cusp of the Reformation. You can see how different it looks. These are separate kingdoms, republics, uh, often at war with one another. Huge Duchy of Milan, huge Republic of Venice. Uh, this was known for being progressive, free-thinking, often at, at odds with the Papal States, so the Pope was not just the head of the church, but was also a politician. Huge kingdom of Naples. And the papal states would often go to war with other uh, of these republics. Republic of Florence wasn't just a city, it was a whole republic. Same thing with Siena. They often battled each other, on and on it goes. So it was a fragmented group of republics and uh, states, kingdoms, as was much of Europe. And so much of the Reformation happened uh, because you had certain kings and dukes, princes that were uh, tolerant of the Reformation or persuaded by the Reformation, the only thing that held Italy together in, uh, before it was a unified country was what? Anybody take a guess what, it, what held it together? One thing. Anybody have a guess? Besides pasta? Yeah, yeah the, the Roman Catholic Church. The church is basically the unifying, kind of the glue that held the, all these, uh, the, these uh, warring uh, states, and not always warring, but it's what held them together. Uh, as one scholar put it, the notion of Italy as one country was then only an abstraction in the poetic tradition from Dante to Machiavelli. I thought that was well said. Uh, so what were some of the events leading up to the Reformation? We talked about this a little bit. Several things. First of all, the Renaissance. Renaissance is very important. Uh, Renaissance began in Italy the 14th century, later spreads throughout Europe, really begins in Florence. That's the, the, the cradle of the Renaissance. 
continues on into the 17th century. It was a, a rebirth. It's kind of what Renaissance means in culture, in art, in architecture, literature, politics, science. Uh, it's considered, in many ways, uh, to be the end of the Middle Ages or maybe the bridge between the Middle Ages and, and the modern era. Uh, Middle Ages you know, roughly gets placed between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Renaissance. Uh, this is a whole new period. It was centered on renewed interest in classical Greek philosophy, ancient texts, basically the legacy of antiquity, going back they say ad fontes to the fount, to the sources of old things, uh, especially uh, texts. And in biblical studies, that meant reading uh, you know, the, the Bible in its original language, Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament. So there's, a, there's so many pictures we could give of, of you know, things of Renaissance. For example, architecture, this is Brunelleschi's dome. If you've ever been to Florence, it's just eye-popping, amazing. Uh, you know, it took over 100 years, really, for it to get done. Uh, nothing like that had ever been built before. Uh, I snapped that with my iPhone 5 from uh, Giotto's Tower. And then this is, uh, anybody know what that is? Yeah, the Annunciation. And it was done by a lot of Renaissance uh, painters. This one's done by da Vinci, and that was in the Uffizi. And uh, so, you know, when you think of Renaissance, we think art, literature, architecture. But in many ways, the Reformation wouldn't have happened apart from the Renaissance. The Renaissance was really something that helped the Reformation happen because people are going back to old sources. And you have this, an old printing press. Uh, this is from a, a book that I have. And it, they would put these, they would put these uh, prints of printing presses, the publishers would, sometimes on the inside of a book, to show you kind of a picture of their shop, so to speak. And so this one's from uh, early 16th century. And we talked about that, how movable type became a thing and uh, changed the way people thought, the way people read their access to books and to literature. And so the Rena this is all part of the Renaissance. Printing press, uh, Gutenberg printing press is 1450s. And so these things help the Reformation along. Um, and so learning was on the rise as never before. Not only in the universities, but also in many monasteries as well. Some monasteries became known for being places of learning. You also had what was called the conciliar movement. And so we, the reason I'm telling you this is so that we, we understand that the Reformation didn't just drop out of the sky October 31st, 1517. Uh, there were centuries that led up to it. And the conciliar movement, as we talked about before, is the Renaissance, as it's blossoming, uh, conciliar, conciliarism, or the conciliar movement, was going on at the same time. And uh, this was a, a reform movement in the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, uh, basically saying that the Pope should not have as much authority as he does, but that he should be accountable to councils, thus conciliar, and uh, there should be a, a plurality of uh, bishops that vote in uh, the form of an assembly that would keep the Pope accountable. And so the, the movement emerged in response to uh, the Western split and schism between rival popes in Rome and Avignon in France. And uh, there were several councils that went on uh, throughout the 1400s, 1500s, and it, it ended up in the early 1500s with the pope winning and being really the, the eventual victor over conciliarism, and conciliarism was condemned at the Fifth Lateran Council in 1512 to 1517. But that led up to uh, the Reformation. People knew that the Pope was just far too powerful. The next thing was papal corruption, because as the conciliar movement is going on, calling for reform within the papacy and within some of the clergy and holding the Pope more accountable, the Pope is really reaching new heights in decadence and corruption. As I said before, not all the Popes, but many of them were just over the top in their immorality. 
Uh, if you read a history of the popes, um, the one I recommend is by a, a Catholic historian named uh, Eamon Duffy. Because if you read a Protestant talking about the popes, I mean, it's pretty easy to, for it to be slanted. Um, but if you read a Catholic about the popes, and he tells you warts and all, the story, that's pretty good history. Because good history is, is always going to be more descriptive of the past, not so much prescriptive and saying, here's what you should believe or how you should act. It's just merely telling the story. And even Duffy will talk about the papal corruption uh, reaching whole new pinnacles. Um, he says, when the 16th century began, there was no intelligent man alive in Europe who doubted that there, who doubted that some degree of reformation of the Catholic Church was an urgent necessity. And so you have people like these blokes. Yeah, right? Uh, this guy, he's probably my favorite in terms of just brazen immorality. Um, this is Pope Alexander VI, uh, Rodrigo Borgia. He was a Spaniard. And uh, he's Pope uh, late, late, 15th century, uh, 1492, we all know that date, to 1503. Um, guy was married. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing's wrong with being married, but what's the Pope supposed to be? Celibate. He was married to a woman that had had several uh, husbands. It was one of his mistresses. He had many mistresses. He fathered a whole bunch of children from her. And I believe one of them ended up becoming a cardinal. Lots of nepotism, you know. If you're, you have family, you could get them, buy them off, or buy, uh, pay for them, rather, to uh, get into the hierarchy of Roman Catholic clergy. Um, he had other mistresses when, when his wife, who he wasn't supposed to have, uh, you know, became a little old. He would just go younger each time. And he kept one mistress in the Vatican. And everybody knew about it. I mean, imagine that happening today. Like, well, there's the Pope, and he's you know, sleeping with this woman that he's not even married to. And he's supposed to be celibate. And he's married. And he's not supposed to be married. And, and he's got a whole bunch of kids, and one of them's a cardinal. You know, it was just craziness. And he was known, I mean, he did a lot of good things that you could talk about, but he did a lot of awful and immoral things that are rather shocking to us. Um, the guy on this side, that's Leo X. And uh, he's one of the, he comes from the Medici family. You might know who they are. I've heard that name before. Uh, the Medici family is a powerful family of bankers in Florence. If you ever visit Florence and, you know, go and look at all the, the great sites, you'll inevitably come across that name, the Medici, because it's everywhere. Uh, their buildings are still standing. They're the ones who built the Uffizi, for example, and, and collected all the art. Well, this is one of the Medicis. Uh, they would have their sons, they would pay for their sons to become cardinals when they were very young. And, uh, and it was just all a political game to get, you know, a family member into the papacy. And sure enough, he did. And uh, he's the guy that excommunicated Luther and was the one that was uh, selling indulgences uh, for the building of the basilica in in Rome, and so lots of immorality. He was also, he had, you know, illegitimate children, and it's believed that he was probably homosexual as well. Um, just gross stuff. Now, they all weren't like that, but there were a lot of them. The Renaissance popes were, were terrible. So it's leading up, you see. And then you had people that were moral reformers, we talked about before. So there were plenty of reformers before Luther. Luther isn't the first. Luther's the first to talk about certain things particularly the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But for centuries, there had been people like John Wycliffe, uh, John Hus uh, from Czechoslovakia. Uh, and in Italy, there were reformers. Um, one of them was this guy, Savonarola. What's that? Oh, that's me in his... Uh, yeah, that's me. That's Savonarola. Isn't he good looking? Uh, that's his jail cell where he was. Uh, prison, it's all cleaned up now so tourists can go in there. It was probably really gross when he was there. Uh, so Savonarola is an example of a, a moral reformer. He's late 15th century, Dominican monk, popular preacher, a little strange, very apocalyptic, always talking about visions that he had. Um, 
but he was constantly calling for moral reform from the papacy. He's, he's simultaneous to uh, Pope Alexander VI. Alexander VI hated this guy because he's a thorn in his side. He lives in Florence, and uh, France invades the north of Italy. It's going to come and march upon the Papal States, and uh, uh, the Republic of Florence would not align itself with the Pope and the Papal States. And, of course, the Pope wants uh, Florence to be part of his, uh, his holy alliance because it's a buffer between France and him. And, uh, and this guy, the whole time, is calling him out and saying the Pope is a scoundrel, you know, he's immoral, he's corrupt, he owns all these things, the bishops own all these estates, the cardinals are rich, they're never, they're never even in Rome, uh, things are horrible, and he's kind of, he's mixing a lot of apocalyptic prophetic imagery with current events, and you know, I'm not saying that he was sound in all of his theology, but he was right to call out the, the immorality of the Pope and, and the cardinals, and so the Pope summons him to Rome and says, hey, that's enough. You're under a ban. You're not going to preach. The guy goes back to Florence and just continues. And he says, you've got to drive these Medici out of here, and we need to have a, a, a free, true free republic uh, that's not just dictated to us by this, powerful, this one family. And for a while it worked. And, but then the Medici's, you know, long story, they, they, uh, they turn the people against him. And eventually, he gets tossed into this tower here. Uh, this is one of the many beautiful buildings. That's the Palazzo Vecchio. Uh, if you've ever been to Florence, it's a beautiful building. You can go all the way up inside the tower, and they, kept, they put Savonarola up there. That's the cell. And he was burned, uh, or hung, and then his body burned at the stake right at the base here. This is a beautiful piazza right here, uh, uh, Piazza Signoria, that you can... Uh, visit and it's, it's very beautiful, but these horrific things happen once upon a time. So there's moral reformers. So all of this stuff is happening leading up, right, to 1517. So now you have a, the dawn of a new day. I mean, as I've said before, it seems almost as if the Reformation had to happen because you have the Renaissance, this rebirth and study and access to books and the conciliar movement. You have moral reformers and... Uh, now you got this guy, this Augustinian monk, uh, and he's here nailing his 95 Theses, which is uh, contesting the cell of indulgences, but of course he begins writing quite a bit. So new things begin to happen. What's happening in Italy? Well, I've mentioned these guys before because our author, Benedetto uh, Fontanini, the guy who wrote the Beneficio, the, the uh, Benefit of Christ, that little 70-page book, it's all law, gospel, one of the best reform books you could ever read. He's part of this group called the Cassinese Congregation. What are they? They're a group of Benedictine monasteries that were very serious about theological, biblical study, and moral reform. So uh, St. Benedict you know, begins these monasteries, the, the monastic life. He writes the rule of St. Benedict you know, back in antiquity. Uh, fifth or sixth century or so, and, and monasteries become an important, stable pillar for uh, the church and for Europe all through the Middle Ages. It's, it's a place where things don't change. It kind of you know, stays put while you have all these fluid boundaries and you know, life happening, as it does everywhere throughout Europe, century after century. But the problem is, is that by the 13th, 14th century, uh, things have become very lax in the monasteries. And so there is a new group of these monasteries that begin to uh, reorganize, and they're all Benedictine, part of the Benedictine order, and they dedicate themselves to studying, in particular, the ancient fathers and the Pauline texts. And they start assembling uh, the best biblical scholars throughout Italy, the best Hebrew scholars, the best Greek scholars, and their monasteries become kind of seminaries in a sense, several of them. And this is where Benedetto is. He takes vows in 1511, and he spends his whole life in these monasteries that were part of the Cassanese congregation. Uh, libraries were extended. They had biblical commentaries, translations from the fathers, devotional works. They were reading Luther. They were reading Bootser. They were reading Melanchthon. 
Um, they, they became just beds, cloisters of uh, theological thought. And their openness to Luther's theology in the beginning of the 16th century was so well known that they actually received warnings from the Pope. And so this is the environment in which Benedetto Fontanini, his, his theological and spiritual formation took place. Um, this is the first abbey, the first uh, monastery that Benedetto spends time in. He's there for about 20 years, or actually from 1511 till 1534. And so uh, there's a tiny map there. It's not far from Milan. I've actually been to the city. I hope to take a little day trip and go see the monastery. It's um, not that big, but this is the place where at the beginning of the 16th century, uh, these Roman Catholic scholars were very serious about reform. They had no intention of uh, departing the church, uh, but they had every intention of studying the text and being open to the arguments of Luther and Bootser and others, and most of them embraced it. And uh, so a whole host of stars uh, were in these places before the Roman Inquisition began. Yeah, we'll get there in a minute. Yeah. You mean in the Counter-Reformation? That might have been Ryan, or a different Pastor Brown. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I have no idea what you're talking about, but it sounds super interesting. Uh, yeah, but yeah. You're talking about the time of the Renaissance. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. All right. So then there's another abbey here. If you've ever been to Venice, um, you may have seen this place. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's a little island. Venice is an island, as you know. There's a whole bunch of little islands right here in uh, the Veneto. But there's a teeny tiny island called uh, San Giorgio Maggiore, St. George, St. George Major. And this is another monastery. And uh, Benedetto spends from 1511 to 15. 34 at San Benedetto, okay, so he's steeped now in this wonderful education, meeting all the leading lights in Italy and some other Europeans. Then he gets transferred here. Um, I should say back in ben at San Benedetto, Paul, he studies under a guy named um, Giorgio Cortese, who becomes a cardinal. Many of these guys became cardinals, and these were guys who believed justification by faith alone. So all of this is it's like way more complicated than we, we tend to think of the Reformation. We tend to think of, you know, bad guys here, Luther here. And uh, it's just oversimplified. Um, it's a lot more complicated than that. You have, the, the, the Reformation is gaining ground. You have books pouring in. You know, 1520, Luther writes his three big works um, the Babylonian captivity of the church, the freedom of the Christian, and, and to the Christian nobility. And they get translated into, into Italian, and they begin circulating. Okay? People are reading them in places like this. And uh, while he's here, he starts coming into contact with all kinds of guys, including Marcantonio Flaminio, uh, the, the famous Italian poet who uh, worked in the... Uh, papal court, who polished up the text for him. And that, that text, remember I read some of it to you, it's so beautiful and so well written, even as you read the translation. And a lot of that is because uh, Marc Antonio Flaminio had polished it a little bit for him uh, in the language, and, that, and that's why the book took off. It sold 40,000 copies just in three years. Uh, so yeah, a lot of books, a lot of books circulating uh, by Luther, Bootser, Juan de Valdez. Then you have these guys, the leading lights in Italy are called the spirituali, the spiritual ones. And uh, these are guys who 
again, they are very open to the, the, what the reformers in other parts of Europe were saying, what they were writing about. And it was much wider than just one day Valdez's circle, but he had hosted many of these guys to come and visit him. So who are some of the spirituali? Uh, here he is, Juan de Valdez. Now, we, when we think of reformers, yeah, we think of Luther and Calvin. and, and Again, Calvin's a second-generation reformer. Um, Juan de Valdez is one of the early reformers and one of the most important reformers. Um, he, he, he is like the Luther of Spain and flees Spain. He, he's an important person in Spain. He's the son of a Spanish nobleman. He's the nephew of the private secretary to the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. He translated the, Aug- the Augsburg Confession into Spanish for the emperor. He's considered by many to be the, one of the greatest writers in the Castilian language ever. And in 1529, very early, he publishes his Dialogo de Doctrina Cristiana, an important book. 1530, he flees persecution in Spain, comes to Italy. 1536, he publishes his Spiritual Alphabet, which was a dialogue with the Italian noble, noblewoman Julia Gonzaga, another one of the spirituali. And uh, he explains the doctrine of justification by faith very clearly there, and he writes it in Italian. In many ways, he's responsible for bringing the doctrine of justification by faith alone to Italy, because he's the first one to, to start publishing these things in Italian with great clarity. His stuff is great on, uh, on justification. He wrote commentaries on Romans, Psalms, 1 Corinthians, Matthew, and his most mature thought is reflected in his book, 150 Considerations, which is written around 1540. Uh, by the early 1530s, he's living in Naples, which is in the south of Italy, and he has a house there, and people are coming to Peter Martyr Vermigli, uh, uh, Contorini, uh, Gasparo Contorini, who later becomes cardinal, Reginald Pohl, who becomes cardinal, almost became pope. Um, lots of people, including Benedetto, uh, who visits there while he's traveling from Venice to Sicily, uh, transferring again from one monastery to the next, and spends time with Valdez. Uh, but he was, he was the leading light at that time, and they were all gathering around him uh, discussing theology and, and what's happening in the church across Europe. Yeah? Valdez, well, I mean, they were all, they were all very, very uh, well-trained in philosophy and, and new philosophy, but uh, above all, he's a, he's a theologian. Yeah. Philosophy's always been, well, it used to be called the, the handmaiden to theology. You know, and uh, of course, all that's now just considered to be the anthropology department. You know, and everything's been kind of lost. But um, but I don't know that we would. I mean, some might call him a philosopher, in as much as they might call other theologians philosophers. Yeah, yeah, maybe like that. Um, but he didn't have he didn't have the same kind of career as Thomas Aquinas. Um, so who else? Peter Martyr Vermili, who I think has the coolest beard of all time. We got. Little double deal there. Uh, Vermili is a giant. He is one who in, eventually leaves Italy. He's born in Florence. He's a priest of the Augustinian order. Uh, became one of the most noted professors in theology throughout Italy. And uh, read Luther, Bootser, extremely well versed in the early fathers, medievals. Many of his works are translated into into English today. Embraced the doctrine of justification by faith alone early preached it and taught it uh, while he was the prior of a basilica in Lucca. And so he is training other monks, other priests, and preaching also in public. And he sets up a school in Lucca that was based on the same kind of uh, uh, humanist curriculum, not secular humanism as you think of it today, but Renaissance humanism that um, St. John's College in Cambridge and Corpus Christi College in Oxford uh, had established. And uh, so and Luca becomes probably the most Protestant city in all of Italy uh, because of this guy. And uh, he stays there teaching. He fled Italy in 1542 because, you might, as you might remember, and we'll get there in a minute, the 
uh, the colloquy of Regensburg was kind of a last effort to bring Protestants and Catholics together in 1541, and it fails. And then the next year, the Roman Inquisition begins. And he knew that his days are numbered, and he's not going to go underground. He's too high profile of a figure. So he either recants, as some guys did, or, or recants and becomes what you call a Nicodemite. That is, okay, okay, I'm not a Protestant, but in my heart I am. And uh, Nicodemite is named after, anybody guess? Who, yeah, Nicodemus. Why, and why Nicodemus? Remember how Nicodemus came to Jesus? Right, he didn't go in broad daylight. Yeah, he was Nick at night. Remember Nick, remember Nick at night? Nick at night. He comes to Jesus at night because he's for fear that other people. So Calvin would often call the Italians, oh, they're a bunch of Nicodemites. And sometimes that's not completely fair. Um, I, I think it's, it's true of certain people, but others not so much. Um, but he wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to go underground, and he didn't want to die. He thought, well, I can go and teach elsewhere. And so he ends up having a long career from... Uh, 1542 to 1562 in mainly three places, Strasbourg and then to Oxford where he helps write the Book of Common Prayer or a couple versions of the Book of Common Prayer, has his great disputation on the Lord's Supper there and uh, that's really what Calvin draws upon uh, on his doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And then he goes uh, to Zurich and at Zurich, uh, Ursinus and other people uh, studied under him for a brief period of time. And uh, so he was very influential. And uh, Calvin thought he was one of the, you know, the most important people in, in, all, of, uh, in all of the Reformation. Uh, he spoke Latin, along with Italian, of course. And Latin could, was the scholarly language, so you could go teach at any university in Europe and uh, speak Latin. He never really learned English, though, which is interesting because he lived in England for so long. And... Uh, Eventually got married, uh, wife died, and uh, when uh, the tide shifted and uh, it became, uh, England became Roman Catholic again under Bloody Mary, flees, and his wife's bones are dug up and uh, desecrated, and uh, you know, horrible, her body was thrown onto a, uh, a dung heap, and you know, horrible things were done, and uh, some Protestants took her body and then buried her bones with a saint so that uh, they wouldn't be dug up again. Um, but never went back to Italy after uh, 1492, or 1542. Got to get these dates right. Uh, Cardinal Gaspero Contarini, complicated guy, but uh, believed in doctrine of justification by faith alone, had sympathies toward the Protestant movement, no way was going to leave Rome. He is pro-Pope, and pro-justification by faith alone. Let that one sit for a minute. Uh, but we have to get into their world and, and just take them for what they are. Uh, we don't want to oversimplify everything. But notice when he dies. When is the Roman Inquisition? Same year. Who knows what would have happened to Contarini had he continued to live. He's the papal delegate to the um, colloquy of Regensburg. And, uh, you know, you, you, you just have to kind of look at their lives for where they're at at that time and what they know and what they're trying to accomplish. But um, he was part of the, he tried to bring some union between Protestants and, and Catholics at the Regensburg, but it was a failed attempt. Uh, this guy, Reginald Pohl, is interesting. He, he went to college with uh, Verbili. He's English but goes to college at Padua uh, with Vermili and recognizes Vermili as one of those brilliant students. They become close friends. He, for a while, uh, quite some time, embraced justification by faith alone, was part of the spirituality, part of Valdez's group, becomes a cardinal, almost became pope. He missed becoming pope by one vote. What would have happened if he became pope? We can only guess. But then, notice where, how long he lives. That's well after the Inquisition in Italy. And he spends almost most of his life in Italy. Um, but ends up becoming an opponent of the Reformation. And uh, in many ways, a persecutor of the Reformation. So he, he flipped. 
Here's my favorite Nicotamite. This guy is a big-time Nicotamite, Mark Antonio Flaminio. I read a really great book uh, on him by a scholar named Carol Madison. Flaminio was received, she says, at the court of Leo X, and in the highest circles of Italy, he was a privileged spectator of the brilliance, debauchery, and infatuate folly of the last days of Renaissance Rome. <laughs> you got to love that. Uh, one of the finest Italian po poets in his day, but it's fun to read the letters from uh, important people like uh, John Pietro Carafa, who ends up becoming pope and just a staunch persecutor of Protestants, uh, writing to Flaminio and saying, I've heard that you, you know, embrace uh, justification by faith alone, or another one, I've heard that you uh, uh, deny transubstantiation, and then he writes the letters back, and he never really answers <laughs> his questions. He just kind of skirts around it and changes the subject. He stays in Italy, but uh, he's a secret Protestant the whole time. Ends up dying in 1550. But he is the one, before we you know, um, think less of him, he's the one that uh, polishes the text of the benefit of Christ. And it's largely because of him and because he polished that text that the book became so well-selling. You know, the 70-page book that just outsells everything in 1543 to 1549 you know, during the Inquisition, during the Council of Trent, and it's just turning Italy upside down, and it's largely because of him. He would never admit that he uh, had a hand in it, but later we know because of uh, Karnasecki's um, uh, torture and, and execution. Here's uh, Pietro Karnasecki. So I was walking in the Uffizi last year, and, you know, you see all the famous paintings, and there's this little painting over here that nobody's paying attention to, and I immediately recognized it. So it was the best thing I saw in the whole place. I was probably the only person who liked it. Uh, you know, who's this little guy right here? That's Pietro Carnesecchi. Carnesecchi is an amazing guy. Born in Florence in 1508 from a prominent family with close ties to the Medici. Uh, father was a merchant under the, the Medici patronage. Extremely well-educated. Brilliant guy. Noted for his eloquence, his writing. By age 25, he was the secretary to Pope Clement VII. Pope honored him with the title of papal pronotary and presented him two abbeys, two monasteries were under him with all their revenues. He got to collect money. It was kind of corrupt, but he got to uh, benefit from that financially, one in France and the other in the kingdom of Naples. Karnasecki became so trusted and so influential to Pope Clement that it was commonly reported that, quote, the church was more controlled by Carnesecchi than by Clement. Carnesecchi came to know Juan de Valdez in 1531, uh, was also close friends with Lady Julia Gonzaga from the powerful Gonzaga family in Mantova, and she was Protestant, uh, was close friends with Marc Antonio Flaminio, the whole group of lights exchanged and discussed the books of Luther, Butzer, Valdez, and some young man named John Calvin, who had just published a small book called The Institutes of Christian Religion in 1536. Karnasecki wholeheartedly embraced the doctrine of justification sola fide, and uh, uh, Vermili's view of uh, the Lord's Supper, which is what we confess, basically, today, um, uh, denied purgatory, uh, papal corruption, but rejected the notion of schism from the church, wanted to be a reformer from within, dedicated his life to reforming from within, but eventually it would cost him his life. And I was going to save this for the end, but um, I'll just go to it now, uh, because this is how we come to know all about the book, Benefit of Christ, is from him. Look at when he, how late he lives so he's well past the Inquisition, and he never leaves Italy. Well, he leaves Italy a couple times, just briefly. He hides out in Paris for a while. But uh, all, all his friends said, you got to go. He's just too, too much of a Protestant to live in Italy at a time of danger. People are asking him to come to Geneva. People are asking him to go to Strasbourg. And, and he says, no, my home is in Italy. My people are Italian, and we've, we've got to work from within somehow. Um, 
early 1540s, Karnasecki was implicated by the Inquisition. They knew who he was. They said, he's one of them. We're going to get him. Found safety in the Republic of Venice for many years, where he led the reform movement there. Stayed there for a long time. 1557, he was cited by the Inquisition a second time. There was a change of popes, and he was uh, called to appear before a tribunal in Rome. Refuses to appear. He knows if I go there, I'll die. 1559, with the death of Carafa, who, was, who became Pope Paul IV, comes to live in Rome for a while. There was a different pope, uh, Pope Pius IV, not to be confused with Pope Paul IV. Um, and he's, for a while, the Inquisition doesn't become as dangerous. Then he dies, and another pope comes to power in 1566, Pope Pius V, and everything does a 180. Now it becomes even more dangerous for a Protestant to live in Rome than it did when uh, Carafa was present. He flees to his hometown of Florence, seeks refuge with the Medicis because they're powerful, give me uh, safety. And initially, the Medici family did provide him with sanctuary, but Cosimo Medici betrays him, hands him over to the Pope in hopes to gain political favor. And uh, his, he was tortured. He was put, set on trial in 1566, and his trial lasted a year, tortured over that whole period. And uh, we had, I think, 34 counts of um, heresy, all of which I would be guilty of, you would be guilty of, I would imagine, um, just confessional Protestant uh, points of doctrine, and one of which was um, you, you embrace the benefit of Christ, this book, The Benefit of Christ. And they, they knew he knew who wrote the benefit. In 1567, now when was the benefit written? Anybody remember? 1543. How long did it take Rome to figure out who wrote the benefit? Things sold tons of copies everywhere. Yeah, we're talking, what, 24 years. He finally gives up the name. He says it's a black monk, which meant not African, but Dominican, uh, named Benedetto. And uh, he wrote it while at the monastery in Sicily, in Catania. Uh, and he gave it, I read it in Naples when I met him with Juan de Valdez, and uh, he gave it to Marcantonio Flaminio to polish. And Marcantonio Flaminio had already been dead, and we can only assume that Benedetto had been dead by that time. And, uh, and, and all of that wasn't known until 1870, when his trial was published. And that's only because, remember, Rome destroyed all the copies of Benefit of Christ by 1549. Published in 1543... It appears on all these bookshelves during the Inquisition, the start of the Inquisition. It sells like wildfire. 40,000 copies just within a few years, translated into Spanish, French, English, into Croatian. It's going everywhere. They put it on the, the, uh, the Council of Trent condemns it in 1546. They put it on the Index of Prohibited Books in 1549. It's burned in bonfires and piazzas all over Italy. You can't find an Italian copy. It's not until 1855 that an Italian copy appears in St. John's College. And, uh, and still people didn't know who wrote it. Renewed interest on who the author is. 1870, uh, some, some uh, scholars find his trial. It's published. You can get it today. You can read the whole thing and about his whole life. It's fantastic. And it's only because of the scholarship that was done there that we know uh, the author of uh, Benefit of Christ. Uh, gave his life. Sealed his testimony with blood and died rather than deny the great doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, as one scholar said, he is a mirror in which we may see what was best in Italian life and thought in the 16th century. He could have done anything he wanted. He was that well-educated, that well-connected. And what did he choose to do instead? He chose to dedicate his life to the Reformation, even in the most dangerous place, and he paid for it with his life. That's a stud to me, that feminine-looking dude right there. Yeah, that's why I was so happy when I saw that picture. Amazing stuff. Julia Gonzaga, uh, she is an interesting lady, um, kind of the Simonetta Carr of her day in some ways, because Simonetta has this way of connecting people, and this is what she was. She was a networker and connected people. She has an interesting life. She, I don't know all that much about her, but... Uh, she was married at 14, which I know sounds gross to us, but was pretty normal back then. She's a widow by age 17. 
She's from a hugely powerful family, the Gonzaga family. You can go visit the Gonzaga castle today. Um, and she refuses to marry, or remarry after that. But she's beautiful. She's known all throughout the world for her beauty. Um, then uh, a little later, uh, Barbarossa, if you guys know who Barbarossa is, you know, the, 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 uh, the Ottoman um, admiral, I think he was, invades the city where she's living to try to capture her for the, the sultan, the emperor of, of the Ottomans, so that he can put her in his harem. And uh, so he invades the city, Barbarossa, and just starts taking everybody out looking for her. She escapes into the night with just uh, one soldier to uh, take her away. Can't find her, so Barbarossa slaughters the the whole city. And uh, she ends up fleeing here and there and and ends up having this really illustrious life as uh, kind of a networker behind the scenes. The only reason why she doesn't get... uh, uh, killed by uh, the Pope is because, or the Inquisition rather, is because of her connections as a Gonzaga. Because even, even you can see how late that she lived into 1566. Even into that time, you know, if you're a Medici or a Gonzaga or you know from a powerful noble family, uh, even if you're Protestant, it still has its perks because there is so much of this of what's going on is politically tied. But uh, but without her, she wouldn't have connected one person to the next. Here's a picture of Benedetto Fontanini. Who, what did he look like? No idea. Yeah, that's just some Dominican monk. Dominicans are in the black robes. Franciscans are in the, the brown. Um, the Dominicans kind of have cool robes. They, they look like, I don't know, Jedis or something. But uh, we don't know what he looked like. We don't know who he is. He's just this interesting guy who spent his whole life in these Cassinese congregation monasteries and wrote one of the greatest books in the Reformation. Day grows dark. Failure at Regensburg in 1541. Roman Inquisition, 1542. It was bad. There's a picture from uh, a long time ago. They would do terrible things, like have pulleys and stretch the body and beat you and... Uh, guys start to die off. Juan de Valdez dies in 41. Contarini dies in 42. Vermili leaves in 42. But then there's that light from the shadows. That's the cover of the benefit of Christ in Italian in 1543. And there's the first English translation in 1548 that says, a tre- it's hard to read in English, a treatise most profitable of the benefit that true Christians receive by the death of Jesus Christ. And uh, rough translation, basically, of um, Tratatio Utissimo. And uh, it spreads like crazy. Council of Trent, 1540. See, it's all happening at the same time. Council of Trent, that big council, it's in Trent, Trento. And uh, Index of Prohibited Books, if you got on that thing, it was, it was a crime. If your book got on that, it was a crime to possess that book. Then there was the massacre of the Waldensians. Uh, Waldensians are a group, kind of a, 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 a Christian sect that forms in the 12th century. It goes back to the uh, Middle Ages by a guy named Peter Waldo. Where is Waldo? And they're a little odd, a little off on a lot of things, and live out in the valleys in the north of Italy and Piedmont. But during the Reformation, they latch on to the Reform movement. I think it's debatable you know, as to how sincere they were as a whole, but certainly many of them embraced doctrine of justification by faith alone. They had a good confession for a while. And uh, during the Counter-Reformation, which is this, Council of Trent and the Inquisition, these guys were massacred, just awful. There's a picture, you can see, just horrific scenes of the kinds of things that they would do to the, um, this is a little bit later, but they were massacred several times. They're up here in these valleys in Piedmont, which has some of the best wine in all of Italy. That's where Barolo comes from, Barbera d'Asti, you know, all these little valleys up there. And uh, they, they, during the Inquisition and then after, um, they just got slaughtered and uh, it was butchered. So this is the end. Post Lux Tenebras. 
What's wrong with that? Huh? It's backwards, right? Anybody ever been here before? It's in Geneva. The Reformation wall, it says post-tenebras, lux, after darkness, post-tenebras, lux, light. That's what it says on the wall. For Italy, it's the other way around. They had a light for a while, and after the light, they'd only lived, you know, into the 1540s or so, tenebras. And uh, that's where we're at today, guys. You know, after Italy becomes one nation, and uh, there's called the Risorgimento in the um, 1850s, uh, 60s, it becomes one nation. You have much more religious freedom after that. But uh, never was there a well-established Protestant denomination, uh, confessional, that uh, flourished in Italy. And so it's a privilege for us now to be part of that and to see these little groups in uh, Turin and Milan and Perugia. And let's pray that the light will grow and that you know, the, the same light that once shined in the darkness... You know, through the Reformation, through these, these guys like Valdez and Vermili and the book uh, Benefit of Christ, will we'll shine again. And uh, they, it, it's been centuries, really, of, of Roman Catholic oppression in, in many different forms. And let's pray that it, it will once again uh, be filled with light and that it will take off. Well, we're going to pray. I promised my wife that I would stop at 12.15, and then if you have questions... Um, I'll stick around. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us. Thank you, Father, for the, the way that we're able to look back and see your providence and the kindness in getting the truth out to many people through the history of your church. We do thank you for the light of the Reformation, and we pray that we would grow in our understanding of that light. And we do pray, Father, that that light would shine here in this nation brightly and also in places like Italy, Lord and that you would bring that throughout the world, and that the whole globe would be filled with the knowledge of the truth. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.